Hey everybody, welcome to the EMS On Air podcast. The primary mission of this podcast is to get the latest COVID-19 pandemic information out to first responders as efficiently, effectively, and clearly as possible. Today is April 3, 2020. I'm Jeff Lassers, one of the Oakland County Med Control Authority Quality Improvement Coordinators, and I'll be your host. The last episode, episode 6, was recorded earlier today, just before this one, and we discussed two of our newest EMS emergency protocols for COVID-19. Specifically, we focused on considerations for when treating COVID patients, and we spent some time comparing and contrasting patients that should stay home versus patients that should be transported to the ED during this crisis. In today's episode, our good friend Dr. McGraw provides us with yet another update regarding the pandemic, as well as how it is affecting us here at home. The doc also provides fantastic insight and answers to a number of questions that we have received from EMS providers. Please keep emailing your questions, comments, feedback, or ideas to qi at ocmca.org and visit ocmca.org slash coronavirus for the latest information, protocols, podcast episodes, and other applicable details. Please follow us on Instagram at EMS on Air. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and soon on every major app. Please subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Well, thank you, Jeff. You know, the virus is doing what it does. It's uh, spreading geographically. It's spreading vertically in certain hotspots around the southern end of our county, but it is going to continue to move north and west and east, and other hospitals will begin to feel it. If there's um, one thing that seems it could be a trend, it could be just an anomaly, the doubling time, according to the state of Michigan, does seem to be extending a little bit. And I, I say that with some hope because if that's true, it doesn't change how many people are likely to get sick, but it does change the rapidity with which they get sick and the degree to which hospitals receiving them are capable of providing adequate space and care, medicine and staff. So it's too early yet to you know, take a deep breath, but I'm hopeful that the very stringent stay-at-home measures instituted by our governor several weeks ago are starting to yield some fruit. But again, it's, it's only been about a day and a half to two days where we've seen a slight, not flattening, but a slight decrease in the rate of acceleration. But any change like that, we can feel it just as an example. In the last two days at Providence Hospital in Southfield, more patients have been extubated than intubated. We're still intubating, don't get me wrong, but we're not intubating at a rate that is greater than we're taking people off ventilators alive, which is in its own way very hopeful. But I would argue the thing that really made me take sit up and take notice is I was Thursday afternoon, I was leaving the campus and I walk out the, the doors right by our trauma room and there's a, a little alcove, if you've ever been to Providence Hospital, Southfield's campus, there's a little alcove where our ventilators are stored in a little kind of cutout. So they're handy for when we intubate. And in the month of March, I haven't had ever one or I haven't had any more than one, but often there's no ventilators in that alcove. I mean, that's just the way it's been. The, the vast, vast majority of our ventilators are being used either in my emergency department or up in the ICU or on the floors. Last night as I was walking out, there were three ventilators in a BiPAP machine all covered in their clean plastic bags. And I've walked by that so many times in the last month and not seen anything there. But to see it there really made me take notice. And then, of course, I get the statistics every day. And for the second day in a row, we, we have extubated more people than we've intubated, which is, uh, a, a, I mean, a really encouraging sign. I, again, 
because of the way this moves, it's a biologic process. It's not mathematical in the truest sense. We're still doubling, but if we're taking longer to double, then our resources can get out in front of it. Otherwise, it's like fighting a forest fire from within the fire. You have to get out in front of it and then beat it backwards. And that's what we have to do is, is hospital systems. We have to get enough capacity so that we are, are ahead of it resource-wise. So would you say at this point, things are better or worse than you expected a few days ago? I would only say that things in my emergency department are not worse than 38 hours ago. That doesn't mean they're better, but not worse is still better than getting worse, if that makes any sense. I'm not convinced we're going to see a plateau, though. I, I think just a decrease in the angle of the curve would be all I could, could hope for right now. But even that would be significant. Even if it comes down from the spike it was to something a little closer to two o'clock on a dial, would still be better than almost straight up like it felt, you know, a day and a half ago. But again, two days is not a, it's not a trend. In a biologically active model, things can vary up or down any given day or two days without any overall impact on the trajectory of the curve. I think it's just too early to tell. And now I'm seeing hospitals that were virtually you know, empty of COVID out of our county and in other parts of our county now starting to see steadily increases every day. So the disease is here. I'm just hoping that there's been maybe some small impact already from what the governor has done. And we'll know, we'll see the trend. It's just in a time like this, when there's so much uncertainty, anything that doesn't seem like it's getting dramatically worse is welcome. Your local fire and EMS agencies that transport patients to your hospital are obviously getting beaten up. Are you seeing a difference in any of the agencies transporting to your hospital? You know, it's one of the things I admire most about my pre-hospital colleagues is that they have these predetermined, prearranged mutual aid agreements between agencies and municipal and private providers. And it's just extraordinary to see it in action. In Southfield, for instance, I've seen medics from agencies way out of my local jurisdiction as they've courageously and nobly provided mutual aid to the city of Southfield. And I'm sure chief of the department would echo what I'm saying. The, the medics and providers in the city of Southfield are so grateful for that mutual aid. What an example for us hospitals to learn from, you know, to how to lean on one another when any one agency is up against it. And within systems, you know, within, say, the Beaumont system or within the Ascension system or within the Henry Ford system, the McLaren system, there is sort of a version of mutual aid so we can level the load amongst our own hospitals but we just don't do it outside of the systems. And I'm not really able to determine why we're so afraid of doing that, I guess, because we've never faced anything like this that required it. Maybe after this, that'll be one of the lessons learned that we can figure out a way to know how each other is doing and, and level it even in and amongst the different system hospitals. So more to come on that, but, but I really just at the beginning wasn't speaking without intent. I'm really envious and very admiring of the behavior of municipal agencies and private agencies backing each other up in mutual aid. It's a testament to the way that uh, pre-hospital providers and their leadership look out for, the, for each other and themselves. It's, it's, it's ennobling. In 2009, H1N1 was a big deal. We've had a few pandemics, nothing nearly obviously in any memory of what we're experiencing with COVID-19. How does this pandemic compare to the 2019 outbreak of H1N1 or any other outbreak situations recently? Well, the 
2009 H1N1 was a very it was a very bad swine flu. There's no doubt, and it and it caused a lot of harm. But it was relatively short lived, and it has a case fatality rate microscopic compared to this one. I would argue because it's a coronavirus. This is much more closely sort of parallel to the MERS, which was the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or the SARS outbreak. Both those were coronaviruses, zoonotic viruses, in fact, that went from the animal kingdom to the human kingdom and then from human to human transmission. But what's one of the differences between this and that is while they had a case fatality rate that was somewhat reminiscent, this one has the added bonus that it also is highly transmissible. And where MERS and SARS caused significant mortality, it wasn't as easily transmissible. And we know that because it, in certain cities, it didn't really leave the city, even though there wasn't a widespread quarantine. So this has just got some rather unfortunate characteristics. And the tumblers of nucleic acid-based paraffate indicated that when this thing mutated inside, you know, reportedly a bat, didn't hurt the bat. But when the bat provided it to other species, an amplifying species, in this case, it was likely pigs, consumption of those pigs led to human-to-human transmission. It's just an extraordinarily unfortunate turning of the tumblers of fate. We don't know how stable this is. You know, RNA viruses, by definition, are rather unstable, and they tend to get their own insertions and deletions of base pairs. And this may come back next year as a much milder disease. Or it may not mutate at all, or God forbid, it it mutates while it's in the Southern Hemisphere and it comes back to the Northern Hemisphere and it's even worse. I pray that doesn't happen. But this is what viruses do. They're, They're not under anybody's control. Do you see anything in demographics or culture that is different with this virus than others? If you take what happened in Milan with multi-generational homes, and in places like New York, where the density of population in any one given building can be so closely proximate one to another. I think those are bigger factors. I think the overall underlying health of a public in a community, if you have indicators of overall health in a community that are less than optimal, higher rates of diabetes, smoking, obesity, immunocompromised states, I think those communities are going to have a significantly higher case fatality rate than those communities without that. And that's especially true among, I think, communities where you you have more underprivileged people or people that don't have access to good health care and good grocery stores, good health maintenance. I think they're at a particularly high risk. But having said that, this virus is also perfectly capable of infecting and killing people with, you know, phenomenal resources. In that way, it's on an individual basis, utterly indiscriminate. So do you think that given what you just said, that as this moves north in Oakland County, that we're going to see less of it only because we're not all crammed together, let's say in Brandon or uh, in Groveland or Holly, where you know you have to be a half acre apart or more. Uh, so we're not going to see that kind of same clumping of the population. Do you think that's going to be different going north? It'll be interesting to see. The answer to that is I think stay at home may, may still help those communities a lot because while they live separately, they actually have fewer places to gather, which makes those places disproportionately more crowded and problematic. If you only have one grocery store and everyone goes there, the sick and the not sick, then not staying at home is a big deal. It'll be interesting to see. This is one of those, because it's such a novel problem, and we have not seen 
you know, really a worldwide pandemic like this since really the Spanish flu of 1918 and 1917. I think it's a lot of uh, guessing when we predict how things are going to go. I do know this. This is a terrible disease. It has a terrible ability to kill people, which I believe is dose-related. The more viral particles you get in your airway, regardless of your health status, there's a threshold beyond which I don't think it's survivable in some cases. So all of the things that we think of to protect ourselves should be centered around keeping as many of the patient's viruses out of our airway as possible. And if we do that and we protect ourselves from that, I'm certain our odds of surviving all this together go up significantly. So we have a couple of questions regarding patient treatment. Uh, if we have a patient in cardiac arrest and we have no idea about their COVID-19 status, should we be using a BVM? I don't think so. And I think I indicated that so many patients, it's so widespread now and causing its own cardiac arrest that I just think it's too big a risk. I think passive oxygenation with closed chest CPR is supported in the EMS literature. I support it. And except in some rather extraordinary circumstance, which are even difficult to conjure right now, I think the risk to the provider is simply outweighed by what minimal benefit a BVM might give to a patient in cardiac arrest. Moving on to some airway questions. I've heard that we are not using non-rebreather masks on any patients because all patients could potentially have COVID-19. Now we know that we rewrote the protocol on this. What's your thoughts on it right now? This is just another example of nuanced one, frankly, of risk to um, provider versus benefit the patient. And it's, it's really tough to write a protocol that includes all the nuances, but I, I guess I look at it this way. The best and safest notion is to give the patient the least amount of oxygen flow necessary to help improve them. And by improving, I mean changing in a positive direction their, their pulse ox. There are some patients that no amount of oxygen delivered is going to give their pulse ox above 90. So I don't suggest that. But if they start at 75 and you give them nasal oxygen up into the mid or upper 80s and they start to feel better, that's good. If you start at nasal oxygen and getting up to six liters of the mask on isn't budging, then I would argue that you need to consider using in that, in that rare circumstance a non-rebreather mask with a surgical mask wrapped around it. And then make sure that the medics are fully protected that they're N95. I don't think I can write a protocol that says, don't ever use a non-rebreather oxygen mask. I just don't think that the risk benefit really equals out that well. And I actually would hope that the medics and providers know that it's an imperfect and rather nuanced assessment of what I'm asking them to do. But it was put to me, well, what if we use a non-rebreather in the patient's home? But then the patient starts to improve. When we get to the ambulance, we go back to trying, you know, four or five or six liters nasal cannula. I think that's great. That's a great attempt at trying to mitigate the risk in the back of the ambulance, which admittedly is different than the risk of the patient in their living room. Should EMS be wearing gowns on all patients along with their uh, other PPE? I think if, if the patient, especially if they're getting like, you know, non-rebreather oxygen, or they're in cardiac arrest, I think you should try to protect your uniform from soiling. But because this is respiratory droplet that are aerosolized that you breathe in, I really don't know how much protection we're getting from getting some of those things on our clothing and just you know making sure that if our clothing is soiled, we decontaminate. I don't know if there's any acceptable peer-reviewed literature on that. 
I would, I would argue that if the patient's got a lot of secretions or you're you know, doing something as risky as having to even suction them, by all means, have a gown because now you're talking about splatter and things like that. But what's interesting is a lot of these gowns are impermeable and the little droplets actually kind of stay on the surface. So if you're wearing a gown, that's great. I have no problem. But please, when you doff it in a way that protects you from not inoculating yourself from what's trapped on the surface of the gown. An example of that would be making sure that you use glove, they use the gloves that you're wearing to sort of turn the gown inside out and then peel off your body with the bad side away from you as you roll it up and discard, you know, discard it in the appropriate bin. I would hate to have you use it to protect yourself, take off your gloves, and then use your unwashed hands to pull the gown off from the front, smear your hands full of you know, COVID-laden spittle droplets, and then you know, touch the inside of your nose or your eye or your lip because your lips are dry from wearing your mask. That, to me, if you're going to be wearing a gown, and I support that, especially if there's an opportunity to be soiled, just make sure you take it off right. Because otherwise, it could go from something that's protecting you to effectively being a vehicle to infect you. The last airway question is, uh, is using the ETCO2 and waveform capnography a predictor of pa a patient having COVID-19? You know, we, we just don't know. Having COVID-19 is a whole spectrum of lung injury. Early on, there's a little bit of what we call atelectasis, where the bottom of the lung kind of squishes down on itself, up to and including significant parts of the lung uh, being edematous and filled with inflammatory cells and juices. And, and in the worst case, what we call ARDS, these stiff, hypoxic, functionless lungs that when the medical examiner looks at them, they don't even look like lung cells anymore that could exchange oxygen, gas, and CO2 across their membranes. They're just completely scarred and inflamed and filled with all kinds of interleukins and these hormones that one white blood cell tells about another one about. And unfortunately, where you are on that curve might determine how much CO2 you're able to get out of your bloodstream and into your lungs. But actually, end tidal CO2 in most people is not so much reflective of lung damage or COVID status as it is the respiratory rate and your ability to what we call ventilate, meaning the competence with which you're actually getting carbon dioxide out of your blood and out of your lungs, which is what obviously half of the job that the lungs do. So it is a measure of lung function on one level, but it's also a measure on minute volume and the ability to ventilate. The last two questions that we were posed were regards medications. Is there any increased risk of contracting or worsening the symptoms or outcomes of COVID-19 by using ibuprofen or any other type of NSAID? You know, this is the, the trouble with a new disease. A lot of these things were guessed at early. For instance, we were, we were initially told in the Italian studies that patients that had large doses of NSAIDs to control their fever, or maybe it was the French study, I can't remember which one, but they indicated that they thought there was a slightly higher mortality in those that use the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. That's probably not true. A further evaluation of the data suggests that, in fact, they had worse disease and had higher fevers. So they alternated between using acetaminophen or Tylenol and an anti-inflammatory, frankly, more out of desperation due to the nature of their illness. But it's one of those things where you, know, you can look at the data and it looks like cause and effect, but it might be effect and cause. Another example sort of unrelated to, to medicine is if you look at the number of ice cream cones sold in any given week and you compare it to the rate of drowning in open water, those two things match up and you could say, you know, eating ice cream causes drowning in open water. 
when in fact they're both reflections of the seasonal summer and the fact that people are outdoors recreating. So one, you have to be careful about assigning and describing an effect to a particular factor and know that if, if it's not done in a controlled study where variables are controlled for, you may point out the effect, but really it's the cause and vice versa. Since that study came out of Europe, however, on further analysis, the FDA does not recommend withholding ibuprofen or other menstrual anti-inflammatory drugs. And unfortunately, I think not everyone got that message, but, but we do alternate Tylenol and ibuprofen now for people. Are there any other drugs that a patient should avoid? You know, right now, there was a time at which they were talking about the group of medications for blood pressure called ACE inhibitors or the ARBs, you think of them as Lozartan as an ARB, and Captopril or Nalopril as an ACE inhibitor. Turns out they were ironically believed to, because they share a, a receptor point to the COVID protein that attaches itself to the cell, they thought that those were upregulated and people that took those medications were at greater risk. Ironically, again, a further review of the data suggests that in fact, in some studies, they may even be having somewhat of a protective effect. The truth is, I don't think we know. And I don't think it's fair to tell people this blood pressure has been working effectively, you should stop it. And currently the recommendation from the FDA is those medications not be stopped. Big thank you to Dr. McGraw for taking the time out of his busy day to do a podcast with us. And thank you for listening to the podcast. EMS providers, please continue to email your questions so that we can get them answered by the good doctor. The more we collaborate on this problem, the sooner we win the battle. Also, if you have any other type of questions, comments, feedback, or ideas, please email us at qi at ocmca.org and visit the website ocmca.org slash coronavirus for the latest information, protocols, podcast episodes, and other applicable details. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at EMS on Air and subscribe on the Apple Podcasts or Spotify today. Have a great day.